I think we appreciated that we were doing something important beyond Hogan and Hartson. There had to be somebody who could stand up to the partnership on an equal footing. So the big issue in the case was what really happened down there at that police station that night. Hello, my name is Kate Stetson. I'm a global board member and the co-director of the appellate practice at the law firm Hogan Levels. In this series of podcasts, we'll hear remarkable behind-the-scenes stories from attorneys and clients involved in groundbreaking legal cases that exposed discrimination and inequality and challenged the status quo to bring about real change. Hogan Lovell's Community Service Department began providing pro bono legal services to those who need it most and otherwise may not be able to afford it. We've had the privilege of working for racial justice, representing wrongly convicted prisoners, low-income homeowners, asylum seekers, and many, many more. I'm joined today by current and former Hogan Lovell's attorneys who were there from the beginning, including Sally Detterman and Bob Cap, both uh, former partners of mine and delighted to have you both back. Sally, maybe you want to say a couple words? I came uh, to the firm in October of 68. I guess I was here until 2007. Uh, when I finally succeeded in, in uh, retiring. But it was quite a run. I was the only woman for about three and a half years. Bob, you want to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, I'm Bob Cap. Uh, I came to the firm in 1961 after three years at the Department of Justice. And I still have an office at the firm. I have not actually practiced for the last, I'd say, 20 years when I stopped actively practicing. Sally, maybe you can start uh, taking us back to 1970. You've been at the firm for a couple years, a little less than a couple years. Um, tell me a little bit about how the Community Services Department came, came into being. Well, let me give you even a deeper background. In the greater society, the late 60s with the Vietnam War and all kinds of movement in the society, young people particularly feeling that we were on a seriously bad course across the board. Kind of reminds you of <laughs> other times, doesn't it? And so what we were finding as we went into the law schools to recruit, and I was trotted out undoubtedly because I was a woman, as one of those recruiters, we found that many, many of the people we wanted the most, the bright, high achievers, were asking what we were doing in the pro bono area, what kind of uh, opportunities they would have for public service if they came with us. This all was occurring in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement. and. There had been the assassinations of Martin Luther King and of, uh, of Robert Kennedy. Um, there was a tremendous amount of uh, social ferment at the time. And one of the things we learned about these young lawyers, we had talked to at some of the law schools, and there was a declining percentage of recent graduates who were taking positions in, in major law firms. They were looking for other uh, alternative op uh, opportunities to engage in public service type work. They were going to the government and they were going to not-for-profit organizations. And so it was important from the firm's standpoint to provide an 
alternative vehicle, if you will, for those for those people and people already at the firm yeah. who were somewhat disenchanted by uh, uh, the environment in that respect. Uh, was it your sense that other firms were doing, were undertaking similar efforts, or was Hogan and Hartson at the time in the in the vanguard? Uh, I think we were in the vanguard of actually setting up uh, a department mm -hmm. to engage in pro bono activity on a, on a full-time activity. But there were things going on in other law firms as well. Well, that gets us into the work of the committee. Yeah. Bob was appointed chair by the executive committee. It was a five-person committee, and right from the start, Bob gave us the assignment which he did, of course, himself, to find out what was going on in the other firms. Mm -hmm. And then we got, uh, we got underway, and we really engaged in quite a major effort. We went out and uh, interviewed law school deans. Uh, we, we engaged in conversations with heads of not-for-profit organizations like the Lawyers Committee to try to find out what it is that they thought we could do and how our resources might be utilized in their in their efforts and we had really talked to quite a few people and we considered a number of different alternatives to the plan that we ultimately adopted or recommended let me tell you how the core idea came up we had done our homework bob was organizing it we were sitting around talking about next steps when Carl said, hey, now, wait a minute. Let's think about it. What if we had been told that the firm wanted to develop an admiralty practice? How would we go about it? Hmm. And very quickly, well, we'd hire a really good admiralty lawyer and give him, him <laughs> support to build associates around it and to do client development and the like. That's what we'd do if we were to build an admiralty practice. And then it became clear to all five of us that that's exactly what we should do to build a good pro bono practice. We should recommend that the firm bring in a partner, and we made a big point that it had to be a partner, and provide such associate assistance and other support that was necessary, and let that person largely take it from there. Right. Now, why did it have to be a partner? Given the fact that the firm had really uh, had very little experience uh, with pro bono activity, and given the fact that there was some resistance, I think, to the idea of uh, substantial pro bono activity, there had to be somebody who could stand up to the partnership on an equal footing, and that suggested that a partner was essential to the operation. Something you just said, Sally, struck me when you, you were the baby lawyer on this committee. You'd been at the firm for a couple Not of years. Not in years, yeah, but yeah. in <laughs> years at the firm. Years at the firm. I, that's one of the fascinating things, just listening to that and listening, Bob, to your description about going to the deans at the law schools. I think a lot of lawyers and non-lawyers think about firms as being driven from the top, and in yeah. many ways they are. But it sounds like this, you know, this effort, which put in place this program we were celebrating now for 50 years, this was actually driven by the younger lawyers. Yeah, this was a groundswell from the basement, yeah. if you will. That's <laughs> <laughs> <It's> fascinating. <laughs> okay, so you decide you have to have a partner. And how, how did you go about finding your partner? I had been 
engaged, if you will, on a project that the National Legal Aid and, the, and Defenders Association. And I found when I got there that one of the members of the committee, or assessment committee, if you will, was John Farron. And I got to know John, and he at that time was the head of the Harvard Poverty Clinic, I guess, Harvard Law School Poverty Clinic. And so when we started thinking about a partner, I thought uh, much about John as being ideal. And we sent off a letter to him asking him to come up and talk about this. And John recalls that he threw the letter in the wastebasket and uh, that his wife fished it out and said, well, why don't you just go have a look? And uh, he came down here and met all of us and uh, became as enthusiastic with the idea as we were. And it was one trash can away from not happening. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> one woman away from that happening. <laughs> Very good point. Wow. So when the pro bono department was up and running, John came in, he was assisted by associates or an associate who was full-time, and then how did the rest of the department get constituted, and what was the initial reaction from the, from the firm, from the partnership? The committee proposal was that there would be a full-time partner uh, to head it and a full-time associate assigned to the department. For two years. Uh, for two years, that's right. And then that we would have a third associate who would rotate every six months. We didn't want to create a department of exclusive pro bono lawyers, in part because our young lawyers wanted the, the opportunity. There were more people wanting the opportunity than there would have been slots for. And it was considered a real feather in someone's cap to be selected as the rotating CSD person right from the start. I think most people liked the attention we were getting because yeah. of it. And the attention it was getting were putting us on the map in ways that we hadn't been perceived beyond a great local firm. Yeah. So I want to ask you both, we're here to talk about the CSD as it began, and we're here on the occasion of the CSD 50 years later. If, if you were to sit down with the newest senior associate in CSD, what would, you, what would you tell her or him about what you wish them to bring forward for their next year and a half or two years? I think I would say that they are now living in the kind of problem-filled society that created the CSD in the first place. And that it is an appropriate role of lawyers, law firms, people of goodwill, to try to use the skills and talents of lawyers to deal with the serious problems that still exist around race, around grave spreads of capacity financial capacity and the like. But I think now, like then, is a time that we need even more passion about it. Mm -hmm. And it was the passion in the young people that made the difference yeah. in those days. And I think it's going to be the passion in the young people that turn our troubles around this time. And lawyers have a big role. Right. I would pretty much say the same thing. I think I'd emphasize a bit the fact that Lawyers have a role in society that uh, goes beyond uh, uh, their day-to-day -day work. 
important as that is and that they, as citizens, having the kinds of abilities that they have, it's desirable that they activate that, if you will. So, yeah, I think that's pretty much the same feeling yeah. about that. And when you think about, your, you both had long, storied, wonderful histories at the firm. Sally, of course, you became our first female partner. Uh, unfortunately, not our last. And uh, <laughs> each of you, with the, the length of time and service with the firm, looking back on that and on CSD, how does your involvement with, with the CSD kind of reflect on the rest of your time at the firm? I've often said that the things that I am proudest of and uh, the things I found most fulfilling in my life have had to do with public interest representation and pro bono activity and the freedom that the firm had afforded me to engage in these various kinds of things. And so I feel very grateful through the firm, that they made all that possible. And I think the firm is grateful to you both. Well. (laughs) (laughs) Sally, how about you? In my professional life, there is nothing I am more proud of than the role I played on that committee. Mm -hmm. I think we appreciated that we were doing something important beyond Hogan and Hartson. I think we knew that creating pro bono opportunities within the context of an existing structure a department like antitrust or litigation was going to make it possible for significant matters of representation and significant opportunities for lawyers to meet their public service responsibilities. I knew when we did it that it was important for the firm. And of course, I made beloved friends. So Sally and Bob, thank you so much for joining us today. It's wonderful to have been here. It's Kate. great so to thank you. Yeah. Revisit. It's yeah. Just great. Thank you. One of the community service department's earliest cases was on behalf of the Black Panther Party and several of its members. This case not only had implications regarding police conduct, but it also helped set the course of the CSD. I'm joined by Judge Curtis Von Kahn and Judge John Farron, who both served as the pro bono counsel on that case. And I'm hoping each of you can just take a moment and introduce yourselves. I'll start with Judge Farron. I came to Hogan in 1970 to uh, help plan and start and direct head the Community Services Department that's celebrating its 50th year, which uh, seems to me amazing, partly because I'm alive still. So I think uh, that's about the main thing I would say. And Judge Von Kahn? Uh, Well, I joined the firm in 1969. I was the 60th lawyer to join Hogan at that point. I think they're now about 40 times that size. And I was here till 82. Uh, Then I practiced a year in California. I came back and I practiced for a couple of years with a small litigation firm. And then uh, in 1985, I was appointed a judge of the D.C. Superior Court. And then in 95, I became a senior judge. I continue to sit some at the court, but I also joined a uh, ADR group called JAMS, uh, where I've been since 1997. Wonderful. 
Well, thank you both for being here today. We are going to be talking about a case that's, I think, colloquially known among uh, Hogan and Hartson, Hogan Lovell's lawyers, as the Black Panther case, uh, D.C. versus Pumphrey. And I think we should start by putting together a little background context. So maybe, Judge Farron, I'll start with you. Can you give us a, a little bit of background on the uh, overall sort of racial tensions of in, within the city in the early 1970s, and specifically between the Black Panthers and the police? Well, if, if you don't mind, I sort of like to talk about who the Panthers are, yes. because uh, yep. some folks may not remember that. Uh, in 1966, the Black Panther Party was uh, put together as a revolutionary party by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, and they were uh, soon joined by Angela Davis and Eldridge Cleaver. And they did a lot of social service, like breakfast for children. They had a, uh, a health center to talk about diseases and so forth. But they basically were concerned about protecting the African-American community against police brutality. And so that evolved into smaller uh, headquarters of Black Panther groups around the country, and a, a small one came to Washington, D.C. And, and in the District of Columbia at that time, which is really the question you asked, Kate, um, there was tension with the police. I mean, we're, we're talking, uh, we're coming through the civil rights movement, there, there was a lot of tension. So police problems in African-American community uh, were existing then, uh, I'm afraid, just as they do around the country, at least now. Interesting. So why don't we, why don't we go back to July uh, of, was it 1970? 70, yeah. yes. And talk about, talk about what happened that day. There was a raid. Well, yes. Uh, on, it was the July 4th weekend, and uh, a lot of celebrating going on. And uh, there was Panther headquarters at 17th and U Street. And um, there were about 30 folks who were out there singing, basically, and not, uh, uh, as far as we could tell, causing any problems. And the police arrived. Uh, and uh, make a short story of it, these folks were arrested for disorderly conduct. And the uh, uh, police went into headquarters without a warrant. They confiscated some personal property. Uh, and they took about 20 of them down to the police station under arrest, including three little children, and uh, uh, charged them with disorderly conduct, which eventually was dismissed by the D.C. government. But uh, out of that came not only the charges on the behalf of the individuals that I just mentioned, but Paul Pumphrey, who was severely beaten that day. And so as a result of that, the ACLU, uh, which is always uh, vigilant about these things, uh, had heard that Hogan was opening up a community services department. And Ralph Temple of the ACLU, I think, wanted to test Hogan and Hartson. Uh, here was about as controversial a case as he could find <laughs> to find out whether Hogan was serious about community services or they're just going to take safe cases, uncontroversial cases. Right. So right. he came and he said, I got one for you. And, uh, and, and I said, hi, nice to meet you. And uh, <laughs> we, we started off, and he was a great, great fellow. Um, but he explained the situation, and I said, yeah, we've, we've got to do this. we got to. Most people uh, realized that... Uh, if we were going to hold ourselves out as a community services department, that we really had to stand up and take the, the cases as they came. The hard cases. The, the, hard, the yeah. hard cases, and so we did. Can you tell us a little bit about, uh, about your, your individual clients? 
Maxine Shoup was one of them. It was her children who were three, I think, of her children were taken into custody. Uh, they were predominantly women, as I remember. No one was very seriously injured at the Panther headquarters. They were later. Paul Humphrey was later. But they were pushed around, and they probably fell down and had some bruises, and some of their property was taken. And as a, they were mad, and they had decided that what's what they took, reason they went to the ACLU was, damn it, we're going to stand up for our rights in this matter. And uh, within a month or so, we filed two suits, one on behalf of Paul Pumphrey, which Kurt can talk about later, but uh, we filed one on behalf of the party and on behalf of, oh, initially maybe a dozen individuals. Mm -hmm. And we brought every tort claim we could think of, you know, unlawful entry, malicious prosecution, assault and battery, false arrest, everything. Then we got $700 a head for each of them, uh, I think a total of a $3,500 uh, recovery. And that really was all that we did at that point because uh, uh, there was nothing more to do. They were very happy with the settlement and uh, the party itself decided for whatever internal political reasons that they no longer wanted to pursue it as, an inst as a party. So that was it and it was resolved fairly quickly uh, compared with the Pumphrey case. So, Judge Von Kahn, let me ask you about the Pumphrey case, if we're ready to move from the Panthers to, to Pumphrey. Sure. Tell me a little bit about him as a, as a client and, and what befell him. Uh, well, Paul Pumphrey was a member of the Black Panther Party and in this region. I don't think he was actually at the headquarters at the time of the raid, but somehow later that day he heard that Mrs. Shoup's three children had been detained. They were being held at the police station, and he decided that he would go and try to get them released. I think their mother was still in custody at the station at that time. So Paul went to the police station, went in and indicated that he was there to try to take custody of these three children. They were being held at the youth division on the second floor, he started up the youth, uh, the stairs to the youth division. There was a verbal uh, clash with a police officer, the exact substance of which was much in dispute. But Paul proceeded up to the youth division, retrieved the children, was heading down the stairs to take them home when several police officers grabbed him and accused him of denigrating or desecrating the American flag and, and being disorderly and all sorts of things. Eventually, about seven to 12 officers ganged up and grabbed him. And this is with the children there. You said you children just bring the children there. down the stairs. The children okay. were there. And he was hauled into a room nearby where they started to beat him uh, all over uh, with, with sticks and, and night, night sticks. Uh, eventually, somebody closed the door to that room so that the people out in the lobby wouldn't see. But the beating continued for a while until he was rendered unconscious. Yeah. He was then taken to D.C. General Hospital uh, for some treatment. I don't think he had any broken bones, but he had bruises and maybe a black eye and it was a pretty bad beating. Um, and then he was eventually uh, released. Was he, ever, was he ever charged with anything? He was also charged with no. disorderly conduct. Mm -hmm. um, 
And at some point, he decided he was going to file his own case about his beating. So what was he like as a client? Uh, Paul was smart. His mother, I later learned, was one of 10 children uh, born to a, a sharecropper in, in rural Florida. I think the only one in her family who went to college and then came back to her area and, and engaged in various community services there for the rest of her life. And Paul later said uh, that was the model. And I soon learned that my job in life was to serve. And I think he had joined the Panthers in part because he believed that African Americans were being pushed around and, and abused and that he ought to get involved in that and do something about it. But he was a serious, uh, thoughtful, determined guy. And I think he thought that this episode where he had been beaten was kind of a classic case that could be made to have some impact on, on the police if they were hit with a substantial uh, verdict and uh, that it was worth his investing his time and energy into pursuing it. Mm -hmm. I think he did it really because he wanted to try to get some additional attention on police abuse. So who did Paul sue and what claims did you make on his behalf? Well, uh, the suit was filed against the District of Columbia, Police Chief Wilson, and as I recall, four officers who had had the major role in the beating, filed in federal court uh, pursuant to the statute that allowed people to go to federal court if someone uh, had deprived them of their civil rights under color of state law. Paul's case also had uh, assault and battery, false arrest, and malicious prosecution. I think those were the four counts. Luckily, the Pumphrey case got assigned uh, for trial to one of the best uh, judges on the court at that time named Sylvia Bacon. She was smart, she was fair, and uh, we, were, we were really quite lucky that she, she drew the case. When, when the jury reached its verdict, do you remember anything about the, how, how long it took them to deliberate, uh, the moment where they came back in the courtroom? I think they were out for a while. I can't remember exactly how long. The interesting thing about the trial, really, was unlike some of the cases that the Community Service Department took, uh, there were no very complex issues of law here. It was pretty straightforward. If the police did what Pumphrey said they did, mm -hmm. he was going to win something. So the big issue in the case was what really happened down there at that police station that night. And this is in the era before anybody has body cameras on them or before there are video cameras located all over the place. So there was no record in that sense of what happened. And it became the classic, uh, do you believe the police officer's account or do you believe the civilian's account? And the jury returned uh, verdicts in favor of Paul on all four accounts a total of $5,500 of compensatory damages and about $800 of punitive damages. And Ralph Temple told us, uh, I think told John, that so far as he knew, that was the largest uh, verdict against the uh, police officers that had ever occurred in the District of Columbia. Is that right? That's Temple? right, yeah. yeah. Well, before we wrap up, any other thoughts you want to share on 
the Panthers case or on Mr. Pumphrey's case? I will say one thing about uh, Paul Pumphrey that uh, I found interesting. He got very, very active in all kinds of civil rights organizations. Uh, Interestingly enough, a few years ago, the chief of police of Prince George's County appointed Paul to the chief's citizens advisory council oh, how interesting. which advises the police chief on on relating to and interacting with the community so here is paul almost 50 years after being beaten up by police now helping to advise police officers about better ways to deal with it and he arranges liaison meetings between police officers and parts of the community so he at least has taken up the the fight and and stuck with it for 50 years. Well, and and 50 years after, I, I believe you said earlier that when Paul was talking to you about his family and his background and his mother's work, he said something about you know, be, being knowing early on that he was called to service. So it appears that he's been quite consistent on that he for has 50 done that. years. He has done that. Quite remarkable. Wonderful. <laughs> All right. Well, Judge Van Khan and Judge Farron, thank you both so very much for coming in and talking with us. It's a wonderful opportunity. Oh, thank you, Kate. Very Our, much. Our pleasure. Thanks. After 50 years of dedicated pro bono work, we've been honored to be a part of some critical legal battles in the fight for justice and equality. In the coming episodes, we'll go deeper into the stories of our clients and their cases, hearing not only from our attorneys, but also from the individuals who lived the injustices and fought back. We hope you'll join us.